When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With just five games left in the regular season, there's a lot at stake for your Seattle Seahawks, not just as a team, but for many of the individuals involved. From the playing field to the coaching staff and even the front office, there are always jobs at stake in the NFL, but even more so when a team fails to meet expectations. So who's coaching or playing or even administrating for their jobs over the next six weeks? As we look ahead to this week's rematch against the Red Hot 49ers, all focus on which Seahawks are on the hot seat. Seahawks Forever is up next. Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am back from Arizona. Had a nice few days down there. Uh... With the love of my life. Um, weather was a lot nicer down there, too. It was uh, 71 degrees, mostly sunny. Got to see a couple beautiful sunsets and uh, walk around in a T-shirt for three days. And then I came home to almost three inches of rain here in metropolitan Seattle um, <laughs> yesterday. So little reality check, uh, which is what we're facing as Seahawks fans, isn't it? Now we're going to talk about that today. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Whichever audio uh, podcast platform you're listening to this show on, please subscribe to the show so you always get notification of new episodes. And if you want to get rid of the ads, you can do that by listening on Spotify and subscribing to the show. Right now it's only 99 cents a month. Um, it's cheap as heck. And, and even, you know what, even if I raise that, at some point, it'll be a dollar or two a month tops. And you can get rid of those ads. That's only through Spotify. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts um, and you, you want to get rid of the ads, you'd have to switch over to Spotify. But you can certainly do that. I'll have the link to that in the description, the details of the show. This is audio only, um, which is something that I'm going to do more of anyway. But I am having some... Really, really rough internet issues here. Uh, moved a couple of months ago, um, had some spotty issues the first couple of months, but then it was working fabulously. Super high speed Wi-Fi, never interrupted, never glitchy, never had any issues. Um, and then all of a sudden it stopped working about a week and a half ago, had a tech out. Uh, he thinks it might be the connection. He thinks it might be the line to the building, which would be the worst of all outcomes, of course. Um and so to do video episodes, I have to use my phone's hotspot to upload it. And the last show that I did on the Seahawks Forever YouTube channel, which also please subscribe to that so that you support the channel and get notifications of new shows there, uh, took six hours to upload a 35-minute show. So we're going to focus on audio. I've got some more, t uh, another team of techs coming out tomorrow. Hopefully they'll get it corrected. But in the meantime, we're going to focus on audio, Okay. And, uh, and the trade-off will be that I'll do more shows. Um, it does take a lot less 
production time, and so I can just almost sit down, hit record, and go. Uh, but today I wanted to talk about this because I, I think it's sort of the overriding um, theme or topic of conversation right now. It's not players on the field so much. That's not the sense that I get, and it's not what I see on social media. It's mostly, uh, are there issues with the coaching, uh, specifically the coordinators on both sides of the ball? But I've even called into question on my show, and I'm certainly not the only one, that ultimately the buck stops with the head coach, right? Especially one that has so much power as Pete Carroll does. So much power that he's, he's actually above the general manager on the company organizational flowchart. Right? John Schneider answers to him. And so I just kind of wanted to, to toss around some of those concepts and some of those ideas about who I think might be more so on the hot seat than others, what the possibilities might be of changes, and where those changes might end up. Uh, let's start with the players. Um, and I just want to touch on this briefly because this this is certainly something that will be talked about much more in depth once we get to the the off season and get close to free agency and and uh, draft season. Of which you know it's it, as much as I love the off season. Those of you that have listened to the show over the years know that I do. Um, in in fact, in some ways, I like it better than than the regular season. There's just a lot more cool stuff going on. Um, But you think about when you look at what happens in baseball, I'm envious and I wish that the NFL was more like baseball. And I, and I understand some of the reasons it's not, but it's just so much fun that, you know, 10 days after the World Series, uh, you can start signing free agents. And immediately after the World Series is over, you can start making trades. I always thought that was cool. Uh, although this year, there isn't much happening. The hot stove has been very warm in baseball because. The entire world is just sitting on pins and needles waiting for um, Shohei Otani to sign and Juan Soto to be traded, which as uh, as I record this, the Soto trade might be happening. It sounds like that was about to happen. And, and Otani uh, reports are that he wants to make a decision by this weekend. So once that happens, maybe the rest of uh, the offseason can commence and the Mariners can actually start adding some hitters instead of sending them all packing. But that's a whole nother story for another podcast that I don't host. So let's talk about, uh, first of all, on the field, players that I believe are playing for their jobs. And I get it. They all are, right? Every year, they all are. But there are certain players that aren't, right? Charles Cross, Abraham Lucas, the running backs, the receivers. Um, on defense, I think there are, there are uh, three that stand out. Four, if you include Daryl Taylor. I, I just don't think that uh, Daryl Taylor has gotten to a point where he's established himself as anything more than a rotational pass rusher. And although I think because he missed his rookie year, I believe he's a, he, he would be a restricted free agent for next year. Wouldn't surprise me if the Seahawks uh, move on from him. So that's the first one, because there's just not a lot to discuss there. But we're going to talk a lot about these safeties as we get into the offseason. Um, just hopped off the uh, live stream on the PSF app with Dana O'Gorman, our midweek show. 
And she made a good point that, you know, with the Seahawks this year, restructuring Jamal Adams' contract to free up some cap space by converting some salary to bonus. They actually moved some dead cap into future years. And while originally the way his uh, big extension that he signed with Seattle, the big new contract after the trade um, was signed, originally it was after the 2023 season that it became fairly advantageous and not as painful to move on from Jamal. Well, now it's not so much. Uh, it makes it harder for them to, well, not hard. It's easy to cut a guy, make a phone call on you, send an email, I think. I don't know. Do they still fax in the NFL to the league office? Um, they could still do it. It would just hurt more and it, and it would just be more payroll space that they can't access. I think we've now seen... Um, well, he missed one game, he missed two. So he's, he's played, what, 10 games? And while there are flashes, I think it's clear and it's more and more evident with each passing game that Jamal Adams' impact on the field just doesn't match the uh, allocation of payroll space to him. And so I think a decision needs to be made there. Either you just take the hard hit and move on from him or... Maybe he changed his role. And there was some talk this year that he would be more of a weak side linebacker type role. Um, I don't know. That's <laughs> I don't know about that because weak side linebacker is called upon more and more these days to cover. And we certainly saw it in the Dallas game. That's that's uh, it's not Jamal's strength. So that's one that I think on an annual basis, no matter if Jamal Adams spends one more. Well, if he spends five more games as a Seattle Seahawk or if he spends two more years, it's it's always going to be a debate of whether or not they should move on from him. I think Quandre Diggs becomes a big uh, point of debate this offseason. That as much money as they have committed to him for 2024, does he make enough of an impact on the field? And if the Seahawks are going to improve some of the, the things they need to improve in other areas, they're going to need uh, some cap space. And reallocating some of that, and as I like to look at it on defense, moving moving it up front, right? If you want to bring Leonard Williams back, which I think was the intention, it's why they were willing to give up a second round pick to get him. They talked about Schneider talked about how they've liked him for years, even coming out in the draft. They've tried for two years to acquire him from the Giants. Um. I think they want to bring back Jordan Brooks and Leonard Williams, and they're going to have to create some cap space to do that. And I think they might have to figure something out with those two safeties. I also think that with each passing game, we are seeing more and more um, that Bobby Wagner should not be an every down player. That as good as he's been at coming up in the run game, and, and tackling as good as ever. Um, the liabilities in pass coverage that caused the Seahawks to move on from him two years ago. And for the Rams to move on from last year are, are things that in this era of the NFL, and especially facing the teams that we face in the division on a regular basis and, and the stress that they put on a defense to cover at all levels that, you know, Bobby says he's going to go year to year, 
Maybe he'll make that decision for them. But I don't know that you can go into next year with him being an every down player. So those are, you know, those are the big storylines, I think, on defense. You know, offensively, yeah, sure, there's some players that are they're still trying to prove themselves, but I don't think they're major storylines. I mean, when you look ahead to 2024, who's your starting center going to be? Right? And, and then, you know, there's a question about whether they'll bring Damian Lewis back in free agency at left guard. But those are those are just the kinds of normal everyday roster decisions you have to make every single offseason. The big question that everyone's talking about this week is Clint Hurt, Shane Walter. And here's where I stand on both of those issues. I, if you listen to the show, this won't come as a surprise. I am off the Shane Waldron train. And even after the Dallas game, because while that was certainly better, it was the best called game he had all year. It was the best performance by Geno Smith in over a year, I would argue. There were still the two crucial fourth down calls that were almost inexcusable, just terrible, terrible decisions and calls. You you run a vanilla run to Zach Charbonnet uh, that everybody could see coming, and you run it to the side of your offensive line that's not built as well as the other side of the offensive line to run the football into. And then uh, the penultimate play at the end of the game that uh, the, um, that uh, that didn't work where they were trying to leak D- DJ Dallas out into the flat and Micah Parsons blew it up and ruined the play. It was just a flawed concept, flawed idea, wrong personnel. Just the wrong idea. I mean, they took away any sign of play action pass to try and slow down the rush. They didn't help a tight, you know, have a tight end in to help their explanation for it afterwards was that the play was designed to let the defensive end go in the hopes that the running back can sneak past him into the flat. Well, Micah Parsons is too good, too big, too fast and blew the play up before it even had a chance to succeed. And so while, while the offensive production against Dallas was better I still don't see the foundational skill of a great offensive coordinator. The good play callers, time in, time out, get the ball to their best players in a position to to make plays. They maximize the talent they have on the field consistently. We see it time and time again. From Shanahan. Nobody ever shuts down Christian McCaffrey. If they throw a concept at him that slows down something they like to do with McCaffrey, he finds a different way. We see it with McVay. In, in a year where we thought the Rams were going to take a huge step back, but every single week he finds a way so that Matt Stafford gets the ball to his best players. And when teams come up with Defensive schemes to combat that, he thinks of something else. He comes up with something else. He schemes something else. He adapts. He adjusts. He grows. He progresses. Look what's happening in Green Bay right now with Matt LaFleur. That offense didn't look very good at the beginning of the year. Youngest roster in the league, a first-time starting quarterback. Major question marks about whether Jordan Love was a, a good NFL starting quarterback or would be. 
and you see the growth happening there, question marks about their receivers and Aaron Jones has been hurt most of the year. And yet he has found a way to make that offense really good. And that team now is challenging the Seahawks. They're actually one of the teams that's, that's bumped the Seahawks out of the playoffs. If it were to start today. And that's just, you know, feel and gut instinct and, and, uh, yeah, I just I, I keep coming back to that word feel. You make those adjustments during a game and also you're able to scheme during the week to take advantage of what you do well. And recognize, be honest about your weaknesses, try to stay away from that. We don't see that on a weekly basis. The Seahawks have a lot invested in, in their tight end group. And they don't they don't maximize them. You're paying Will Disley. Nine million. I think his cap hit next year is ten, and he's he's an afterthought. He's an afterthought in the passing game, and and the thing he's supposed to do the best of them all is block, and he's not in there on key plays. Why don't you have Will Disley in there helping with Micah Parsons on fourth and two with the game on the line? Why aren't you using Noah Fan, a, f- a first round draft pick, a key piece in the Russell Wilson trade, a guy that is athletically gifted as? almost every other tight end in the league and you're not taking advantage of that. The running game is almost non-existent at times. We see major, major gaps where Seahawks will have an, an entire quarter, an entire half where it just it just seems like they... They can't get things going. I'll never forget when Geno Smith was hurt three weeks ago and he goes out, Drew Locke has to come in in a game they really need to win. And the defense comes up with a stop. It's time for the Seahawks to answer. They got to get something going on offense. And he calls three straight passing plays for Drew Locke. The guy who's hardly taken, hardly taken a rep in practice. I just don't know. We're almost three years into this now. And there are those out there who are very, very good at analyzing this kind of thing and breaking down tape. And we see some of the stuff Colt McCoy has done and JT O'Sullivan and Dan Orlovsky. And they'll say really nice things about Shane Waldron and how he can design a play and scheme a couple things up. But the great play callers are a different breed. And they're able to adapt and adjust and feel how a game's going and be proactive and, and, and not just react all the time to what the defense is doing, but, but come up with something that you do well and keep doing that thing. I think we all believe that we like the parts on the Seahawks offense. And why, is it, why isn't it more consistently successful? And if you come at me with, well, they just got Abe Lucas back. If you're that dependent on one Linemen, I'll give you 10 other examples over the last couple of years of contending teams that have lost starting offensive linemen and found a way to adapt. Brian Schottenheimer was let go after three years under Pete Carroll. You have to wonder if he regrets that now because you see what Schottenheimer is doing in Dallas now. Yeah, did you know that? He's the offensive coordinator there running that high-powered offense. Uh, Dana and I on our show today 
you know, she, we were talking about this and she said, oh, I think I think Waldron's fired already. I think, you know, Pete just doesn't make changes like that during the season. I think it's a foregone conclusion. He's gone at the end of the year. I thought that going into the Dallas game, but that performance other than the two first down calls was so good that if that offense continues to move the ball like that, Geno Smith continues to play at that kind of level. Because you do have to give Shane Waldron some credit since the Cincinnati game and what he's done to speed up Geno's processing and decision-making and how much better the quick game has been. You have to give him credit for that. If they were continuing to move the ball like that, I, I, you know, maybe it's not a foregone conclusion. Maybe Shane Waldron still has a chance to save his job. I don't know. I, for me to be convinced that he, that he deserves that is I'm going to have to see that running game show some sense of consistency and impact into the second half of games. He's just way too quick to abandon it. Now, on defense, I have a much different feel because I don't think it matters. That's my take on that. How many defensive coordinators has Pete cycled through since Dan Quinn and Gus Bradley? And the results haven't changed. Chris Richard, Kent Norton Jr., Clint Hurt. Pete will look you in the eye and, and pound the table and adamantly declare that, you know, he doesn't meddle. He's not the defensive coordinator. He's not the guy calling the shots. He gives autonomy to his defensive coordinator. And it's Clint's coaching the defense differently than Ken Norton did. If you believe that, then how else do you explain the fact that it hasn't gotten better? I think we all agree that the talent on defense overall is better now than it was two years ago, a year ago, three, four, five years ago, certain, ever since kind of the last remnants of the Legion of Boom moved on. Through three coordinators, then why has it the results not changed? Because if you believe that Pete isn't heavily involved in the defense, that he is giving his coordinators autonomy, then wouldn't that just mean he's bad at hiring coordinators, making that decision? And also this last offseason, there were reports that you know he was looking at some other guys, some more experienced guys. I said last year, I meant two years ago, when he hired Clint Hurt. Why wouldn't some of those, why wouldn't some of those guys accept the job? Was it maybe because they knew that Pete wouldn't give them full autonomy? And so I don't know. I'm I'm not as invested in whether or not he fires Clint Hurt after the season because I don't think it matters. I'm at the point now where I think the only way for that defense to get better over the next couple of years is they just have to make some better personnel choices. They have to get a middle linebacker that can cover better. They have to, they have to make some decisions at safety. They have to add another, they got to bring back Leonard Williams and add another impact defensive lineman. 
You have to be able to rush four and get home. You know, talent can cover up some deficiencies in coaching for sure, but great coaching can also adjust and succeed even when the talent isn't quite there. And again, I use I use the Rams as an example. I'm telling you, to a man, all of you Seahawks fans, I know this to be true. Thought the Rams were going to be terrible this year. We're going to be in the running for a top five pick, didn't you? Because you looked at that defense and you saw Aaron Donald and then you saw 10 other guys. And eight of eight other guys on defense, of which uh, you didn't even know who they were. But Raheem Morris is really good at coordinating a defense and he's made them competitive. And Sean McVay has made that offense still consistent, still explosive, still effective. With a Cooper Cup that's not 100%, wasn't on the field for half the season. With running back injuries, with offensive line injuries. And yet he continues to find ways to score points on people. So I think a lot can be can be said over these last five games. And ultimately, it all comes back to the head coach. And that, that's what I'm going to end on is the big unknown here. I think the, the Dallas game quieted some people down because you all saw us on national TV, the most streamed game in NFL history, go into Dallas and compete, legitimately compete head to head with what was up until that day, uh, what I would call the hottest team in the league. I think San Francisco now firmly holds that title after what they did in Philadelphia on Sunday. And so I, th- I think some of that has quieted down. The fire peak crowd has quieted down a little bit. But there's still a, a pretty large segment of the Seahawks fan base that thinks it's time for Pete to move on. And I've called that into question on my own show. Right? Last week. It's hard for me to think about. I don't want to think about Pete moving on. But I feel very similar to the way I felt at the end of the Mike Holmgren era. Loved him as a coach, appreciated everything he did for the organization, but the league changed and evolved and he was stubborn and stuck in his ways and he didn't change with it. And when it was over for Mike, it was over. His system didn't work anymore. He couldn't, he just couldn't make it work. And you have to wonder, as great as Pete Carroll is at building culture, building men, leading men, Maybe with where the NFL is today and where it's headed, it's so much more intricate than it used to be. It's changed so much. Maybe he's not changing with it. And so what's going to come first? Him realizing that, being that self-aware, deciding to make a change on his own, or does Jody Allen have what it takes to make a decision. What if this team finishes 6-11? and 11? Jody Allen make a change? We don't have a lot of history to lean on. She's only fired one coach in her ownership career, and that was Terry Stotts with the Portland Trailblazers in 2021. 
and it's not it's it's not apples to apples as a comparison. You know, they had they had been knocked out of the playoffs in the first round four years in a row. They were good, but not great. They weren't progressing. You can actually make the argument that she was more patient with him than a lot of NBA owners are, who tend to change head coaches like they change their socks. So we don't know. We know that in 2021, there were reports after the, you know, the seven win year and they missed the playoffs that Allen wasn't happy and that maybe Pete and John's jobs were on the line and there were meetings in January. They came out of those meetings saying they were on the same page. No changes were made. We find out later that Russell Wilson may have been pushing to have some changes made and that Jody chose Pete and John that day. Russ was traded a few months later. And then all the positivity of the positive rebuild over the last couple of years and building this roster up with all those draft picks that they got in the Russell Wilson trade, doing a nice job of adding a lot of young talent to this roster. But I think the sum of the parts isn't as good as it could be. And who else does that fall on? How many times can you fire your coordinators and claim that that that's the thing holding you back? Like if this team goes 6-11 or 7-10, can he go into Jody Allen's office and say, well, we just need need to find another coordinator? Pete, I've heard that before. You said that last time. Uh, Dana had a really interesting idea today that maybe, you know, Pete decides he wants to stay with the organization, but move on from coaching. And as the vice president, choose to bring in a, a coach of his choosing, someone he respects a great deal. And I knew who she was talking about before she even said it, because it's the guy that I would target. Number one, first and foremost, if Pete were to move on either on his own or because it was chosen for him, and that's Dan Quinn. Pretty fascinating scenario that she had that, you know, Pete sticks around as vice president, moves up to the front office, works kind of hand in hand with John Schneider, and but works with Chuck Arnold, the president of the team, and kind of overseeing everything and brings Dan Quinn in to be the head coach. And lets him coach the team. I don't know. Interesting idea. You know, the Pete Carroll that we know and love is emboldened by a challenge, is energized by a challenge. He certainly was when they traded Russell Wilson. You could see it. He seemed even more enthusiastic and vibrant than he had been in years. But he's the oldest coach in the league. And guess what? He gets a year older every year. How much more of that does he have left in him? If if when they evaluate their roster in this offseason, they decide, okay, even though Geno's played well for us, he's 33 years old, we're not, you know, our ceiling is what it is. We're not getting closer to Super Bowl contention. We have an opportunity now. We're drafting in the top 15. I mean, that's the way it's trending. If the draft was today, the Seahawks would pick 15th. They could pick, they could end up ultimately picking as high as seven or eight. It's a really good quarterback draft, you guys. If they decide, hey, we need, it's time. We need to commit to a young quarterback. Does Pete want to go through that again? 
I think it's the storyline in these last five games. It is no longer can they make the playoffs and make a run. To me, it's can these coaches prove that they're worthy of keeping their jobs? And is Pete still the guy to lead this? And, and get this roster that I think we all agree has a lot of young talent. That's Most of it's locked up for the next couple of years. There's a window here. Is Pete the guy to lead us through the window or through the door, I guess is a better analogy, to be a Super Bowl contender again? I think that's the question. And I think Pete has kind of painted himself in a corner with his comments this week. Because he was asked, do you think this team's going to make the playoffs? And he said, I think we're a playoff-worthy team. This is a playoff team. So if they don't go out and at least show it against San Francisco this week, and then Philly eight days later on Monday night, a Philadelphia team that's looking a little bit more vulnerable over the last couple of weeks. If they don't show it, and then turn that into something really tangible for us to see over the last three games of the year against lesser opponents. Well, we think they're lesser opponents. Are they? Four of the Seahawks' six wins are against the four teams in the league that are dead last, occupying the last four spots in uh, total DVOA. So maybe even those last three games, I'm going to week 17, or I guess it's 18 now, right? I'm going to the last game of the year in Arizona. Do you feel as confident about that now? If it comes down to that game, and it probably will, if the Seahawks put themselves in a position to make the playoffs, they're probably going to be in a situation where on the last day of the year, they have to beat the Cardinals in Arizona to make the playoffs. Did you just see what Arizona did in Pittsburgh last week? Have you seen how revitalized and dynamic Kyler Murray looks again? That's a team not trying to tank. I mean, yeah, Pittsburgh with Mitch Trubisky, Tennessee with Will Levis. Maybe those are games you should win. That Arizona one can be tricky. So I, th- I think that's the focus now these last five games. I think the playoffs are irrelevant. Because do any of us believe that if they did sneak into the playoffs, they could make a, a serious run, beat the 49ers or the Eagles in the playoffs, Dallas? I think some big, big picture decisions are going to be made based on what we see over the next five weeks. Um, And it's going to be a a fascinating offseason. What do you think about that? You know, since this is audio only, not as much chance to interact. So get on Twitter with me at Seahawks Forever. If you're one of those that's leaving Twitter in the dust and you want to move over to threads, my handle there is Seahawks Forever Dan. Um, You can hit me up there certainly. And uh, let me know what you think is going to happen, what you think you want to happen. And uh, we'll continue to talk about it, analyze it each, each week, each game is going to give us a little bit more evidence into where this team is at. You know, we headed into it with all the optimism that we liked so many of the pieces that if they put it together, they could be a really fun, interesting team that could make some noise in the playoffs this year. Um, And here we are 12 games in and we're not there. So what can we do? We can play spoiler. We can maybe sneak into the playoffs. To me, that doesn't matter. 
it's the big picture stuff I'm going to be focusing on. That's the stuff I'm going to talk about on this show over the next six weeks before we get into the offseason. I am Dan Viennes. This is Seahawks Forever. Please subscribe to the show. Again, if you want uh, ad-free audio experience, you can uh, subscribe on Spotify for 99 cents a month. That link is in the show description. And if you want to support me in the show, you can buy me a coffee or a beer. That is in the description as well. Thank you to those of you who uh, tossed me some coffees and beers this last week. I really appreciate it. Um, forever and always go Hawks. That's how I like to end every show. And we need everything we can get in San Francisco this week. You can make an argument that from the 49ers side of things, this is a little bit of a trap game coming off a really emotional and physical game in Philadelphia. They're riding high. They're feeling good. They blew us out two weeks ago. Uh, they're just so talented. And I think, um, personally, I think Brock Purdy just continues to get better every single week. Um, it's, it's crazy, right? The 49ers have been so close to being a dominant team over the last couple of years, and now we can see that the, the one thing holding them back is they just weren't getting play from the quarterback position. Now they are. So let's see if the Seahawks can, can compete this week. Until then, I'm Dan. Thanks for listening, guys.